Chapter Six of Tarzan of the Apes. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Tarzan of the Apes by Edgar Rice Burroughs. Chapter Six: Jungle Battles. The wanderings of the tribe brought them often near the closed and silent cabin by the little landlocked harbor. To Tarzan this was always a source of never-ending mystery and pleasure. He would peek into the curtain windows, or, climbing upon the roof, peer down the black depths of the chimney in vain endeavor to solve the unknown wonders that lay within those strong walls. His childlike imagination pictured wonderful creatures within and the very impossibility of forcing entrance added a thousandfold to his desire to do so. He would clamber about the roof and windows for hours, attempting to discover means of ingress, but to the door he paid little attention, for this was apparently as solid as the walls. It was in the next visit to the vicinity, following the adventure with old Sabor, that, as he approached the cabin, Tarzan noted that from a distance the door appeared to be an independent part of the wall in which it was set, and for the first time it occurred to him that this might prove the means of entrance which had so long eluded him. He was alone, as was often the case when he visited the cabin, for the apes had no love for it, the story of the thunderstick having lost nothing in the telling during these ten years had quite surrounded the white man's deserted abode with an atmosphere of weirdness and terror for the simians. The story of his own connection with the cabin had never been told him. The language of the apes had so few words that they could talk but little of what they had seen in the cabin, having no words to accurately describe either the strange people or their belongings, and so, long before Tarzan was old enough to understand, the subject had been forgotten by the tribe. Only in a dim, vague way had Kayla explained to him that his father had been a strange white ape, but he did not know that Kayla was not his own mother. On this day, then, he went directly to the door and spent hours examining it and fussing with the hinges, the knob, and the latch. Finally he stumbled upon the right combination, and the door swung creakingly open before his astonished eyes. For some minutes he did not dare venture within. But finally, as his eyes became accustomed to the dim light of the interior, he slowly and cautiously entered. In the middle of the floor lay a skeleton, every vestige of flesh gone from the bones to which still clung the mildewed and mouldering remnants of what had once been clothing. Upon the bed lay a similar gruesome thing, but smaller, while in a tiny cradle nearby was a third, a wee mite of a skeleton. To none of these evidences of a fearful tragedy of a long dead day did little Tarzan give but passing heed. His wild jungle life had inured him to the sight of dead and dying animals, and had he known that he was looking upon the remains of his own father and mother, he would have been no more greatly moved. The furnishings and other contents of the room it was that which riveted his attention. He examined many things minutely strange tools and weapons, books, paper, clothing, what little had withstood the ravages of time and the human atmosphere of the jungle coast. He opened chests and cupboards such as did not baffle his small experience, and in these he found the contents much better preserved. 
Among other things he found a sharp hunting-knife, on the keen blade of which he immediately proceeded to cut his finger. Undaunted he continued his experiments, finding that he could hack and hew splinters of wood from the table and chairs with this new toy. For a long time this amused him, but finally tiring he continued his explorations. In a cupboard filled with books he came across one with brightly colored pictures. It was a child's illustrated alphabet. A is for Archer, who shoots with a bow. B is for Boy, his first name is Joe. The pictures interested him greatly. There were many apes with faces similar to his own, and further over in the book he found, under M, some little monkeys such as he saw daily flitting through the trees of his primeval forest. But nowhere was pictured any of his own people, and all the book was none that resembled Kerchak, or Tublat, or Kala. At first he tried to pick the little figures from the leaves, but he soon saw that they were not real, though he knew not what they might be nor had he any words to describe them. The boats and trains and cows and horses were quite meaningless to him, but not quite so baffling as the odd little figures which appeared beneath and between the colored pictures. Some strange kind of bug he thought they might be, for many of them had legs, though nowhere could he find one with eyes and a mouth. It was his first introduction to the letters of the alphabet, and he was over ten years old. Of course he had never before seen print, or ever had spoken with any living thing which had the remotest idea that such a thing as a written language existed, nor ever had he seen any one reading. So what wonder that the little boy was quite at a loss to guess the meaning of these strange figures. Near the middle of the book he found his old enemy, Sabor the lioness, and further on coiled Hista the snake. Oh, it was most engrossing! Never before in all his ten years had he enjoyed anything so much. So absorbed was he that he did not note the approaching dusk, until it was quite upon him and the figures were blurred. He put the book back in the cupboard and closed the door, for he did not wish any one else to find and destroy his treasure, and as he went out into the gathering darkness he closed the great door of the cabin behind him as it had been before he discovered the secret of its lock, but before he left he had noticed the hunting-knife lying where he had thrown it upon the floor, and this he picked up and took with him to show to his fellows. He had taken scarce a dozen steps toward the jungle when a great form rose up before him from the shadows of a low bush. At first he thought it was one of his own people, but in another instant he realized it was Bolgani, the huge gorilla. So close was he that there was no chance for flight, and little Tarzan knew that he must stand and fight for his life, for these great beasts were the deadly enemies of his tribe, and neither one nor the other ever asked or gave quarter. Had Tarzan been a full-grown bull-ape of the species of his tribe he would have been more than a match for the gorilla, but being only a little English boy, though enormously muscular for such, he stood no chance against his cruel antagonist. In his veins, though, flowed the blood of the best of a race of mighty fighters, and back of this was the training of his short lifetime among the fierce brutes of the jungle. He knew no fear, as we know it. His little heart beat the faster, but from the excitement and exhilaration of adventure. Had the opportunity presented itself he would have escaped, but solely because his judgment told him he was no match for the great thing which confronted him. 
and since reason showed him that successful flight was impossible, he met the gorilla squarely and bravely, without a tremor of a single muscle, or any sign of panic. In fact, he met the brute midway in its charge, striking its huge body with his closed fists, and as futilely as if he had been a fly attacking an elephant. But in one hand he still clutched the knife he had found in the cabin of his father, and as the brute, striking and biting, closed upon him, the boy accidentally turned the point toward the hairy breast. As the knife sank deep into its body, the gorilla shrieked in pain and rage. But the boy had learned in that brief second a use for his sharp and shining toy, so that, as the tearing, striking beast dragged him to earth, he plunged the blade repeatedly and to the hilt into its breast. The gorilla, fighting after the manner of its kind, struck terrific blows with its open hand, and tore the flesh at the boy's throat and chest with its mighty tusks. For a moment they rolled upon the ground in the fierce frenzy of combat. More and more weakly the torn and bleeding arm struck home with the long sharp blade, then the little figure stiffened with a spasmodic jerk, and Tarzan, the young Lord Greystoke, rolled unconscious upon the dead and decaying vegetation which carpeted his jungle home. A mile back in the forest the tribe had heard the fierce challenge of the gorilla, and as was his custom when any danger threatened, Kerchak called his people together, partly for mutual protection against a common enemy, since this gorilla might be but one of a party of several, and also to see that all members of the tribe were accounted for. It was soon discovered that Tarzan was missing, and Tublat was strongly opposed to sending assistance. Kerchak himself had no liking for the strange little waif, so he listened to Tublat, and finally, with a shrug of his shoulders, turned back to the pile of leaves on which he had made his bed. But Kayla was of a different mind. In fact, she had not waited but to learn that Tarzan was absent, ere she was fairly flying through the matted branches toward the point from which the cries of the gorilla were still plainly audible. Darkness had now fallen and an early moon was sending its faint light to cast strange, grotesque shadows among the dense foliage of the forest. Here and there the brilliant rays penetrated to earth, but for the most part they only served to accentuate the Stygian blackness of the jungle's depths. Like some huge phantom, Kayla swung noiselessly from tree to tree, now running nimbly along a great branch, now swinging through space at the end of another only to grasp that of a farther tree in her rapid progress toward the scene of the tragedy her knowledge of jungle life told her was being enacted a short distance before her. The cries of the gorilla proclaimed that it was in mortal combat with some other denizen of the fierce wood. Suddenly those cries ceased, and the silence of death reigned throughout the jungle. Kayla could not understand for the voice of Bolgani had at last been raised in the agony of suffering and death, but no sound had come to her by which she possibly could determine the nature of his antagonist. That her little Tarzan could destroy a great bull gorilla she knew to be improbable, and so, as she neared the spot from which the sounds of the struggle had come, she moved more warily, and at last slowly, and with extreme caution, she traversed the lowest branches peering eagerly into the moon-splashed blackness for a sign of the combatants. Presently she came upon them, lying in a little open space full under the brilliant light of the moon, little Tarzan's torn and bloody form, and beside it a great bull gorilla, stone dead. 
With a low cry, Kayla rushed to Tarzan's side, and gathering the poor, blood-covered body to her breast, listened for a sign of life. Faintly, she heard it, the weak beating of the little heart. Tenderly she bore him back through the inky jungle to where the tribe lay, and for many days and nights she sat guard beside him, bringing him food and water, and brushing the flies and other insects from his cruel wounds. Of medicine or surgery the poor thing knew nothing. She could but lick the wounds, and thus she kept them cleansed, that healing nature might the more quickly do her work. At first Tarzan would eat nothing, but rolled and tossed in a wild delirium of fever. All he craved was water, and this she brought him in the only way she could, bearing it in her own mouth. No human mother could have shown more unselfish and sacrificing devotion than did this poor wild brute for the little orphaned waif whom fate had thrown into her keeping. At last the fever abated, and the boy commenced to mend. No word of complaint passed his tight-set lips, though the pain of his wounds was excruciating. A portion of his chest was laid bare to the ribs, three of which had been broken by the mighty blows of the gorilla. One arm was nearly severed by the giant fangs, and a great piece had been torn from his neck, exposing his jugular vein, which the cruel jaws had missed but by a miracle. With the stoicism of the brutes who had raised him he endured his suffering quietly, preferring to crawl away from the others and lie huddled in some clump of tall grasses, rather than to show his misery before their eyes. Kayla alone he was glad to have with him, but now that he was better she was gone longer at a time in search of food, for the devoted animal had scarcely eaten enough to support her own life while Tarzan had been so low, and was in consequence reduced to a mere shadow of her former self. End of chapter Chapter 7 of Tarzan of the Apes this is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Tarzan of the Apes by Edgar Rice Burroughs Chapter 7 The Light of Knowledge After what seemed an eternity to the little sufferer, he was able to walk once more, and from then on his recovery was so rapid that in another month he was as strong and active as ever. During his convalescence he had gone over in his mind many times the battle with the gorilla, and his first thought was to recover the wonderful little weapon which had transformed him from a hopelessly outclassed weakling to the superior of the mighty terror of the jungle. Also, he was anxious to return to the cabin and continue his investigations of its wondrous contents. So early one morning he set forth alone upon his quest. After a little search he located the clean-picked bones of his late adversary, and close by, partly buried beneath the fallen leaves, he found the knife, now red with rust from its exposure to the dampness of the ground and from the dried blood of the gorilla. He did not like the change in its former bright and gleaming surface, but it was still a formidable weapon, and one which he meant to use to advantage whenever the opportunity presented itself. He had in mind that no more would he run from the wanton attacks of old Tublat. In another moment he was at the cabin, 
and after a short time had again thrown the latch and entered. His first concern was to learn the mechanism of the lock, and this he did by examining it closely while the door was open, so that he could learn precisely what caused it to hold the door, and by what means it released at his touch. He found that he could close and lock the door from within, and this he did so that there would be no chance of his being molested while at his investigation. He commenced a systematic search of the cabin, but his attention was soon riveted by the books which seemed to exert a strange and powerful influence over him, so that he could scarce attend to aught else for the lure of the wondrous puzzle which their purpose presented to him. Among the other books was a primer, some child's readers, numerous picture-books, and a great dictionary. All of these he examined, but the pictures caught his fancy most, though the strange little bugs which covered the pages where there were no pictures excited his wonder and deepest thought. Squatting upon his haunches on the table-top in the cabin his father had built, his smooth, brown, naked little body bent over the book which rested in his strong, slender hands, and his great shock of long black hair falling about his well-shaped head and bright intelligent eyes, Tarzan of the Apes, little primitive man, presented a picture filled at once with pathos and with promise, an allegorical figure of the primordial groping through the black night of ignorance toward the light of learning. His little face was tense and steady, for he had partially grasped, in a hazy, nebulous way, the rudiments of a thought which was destined to prove the key and the solution to the puzzling problem of the strange little bugs. In his hands was a primer opened at a picture of a little ape similar to himself, but covered, except for hands and face, with strange colored fur, for such he thought the jacket and trousers to be. Beneath the picture were three little bugs, B-O-Y and now he had discovered in the text upon the page that these three were repeated many times in the same sequence. Another fact he learned, that there were comparatively few individual bugs, but these were repeated many times, occasionally alone, but more often in company with others. Slowly he turned the pages, scanning the pictures and the text for a repetition of the combination B-O-Y. Presently he found it beneath the picture of another little ape, and a strange animal which went upon four legs like the jackal, and resembled him not a little. Beneath this picture the bugs appeared as a boy and a dog. There they were, the three little bugs which always accompanied the little ape. And so he progressed very, very slowly, for it was a hard and laborious task which he had set himself without knowing it a task which might seem to you or me impossible, learning to read without having the slightest knowledge of letters or written language, or the faintest idea that such things existed. He did not accomplish it in a day, or in a week, or in a month, or in a year, but slowly, very slowly, he learned after he had grasped the possibilities which lay in those little bugs, so that by the time he was fifteen, he knew the various combinations of letters which stood for every pictured figure in the little primer, and in one or two of the picture-books. Of the meaning and use of the articles and conjunctions, verbs and adverbs and pronouns, he had but the faintest conception. 
One day when he was about twelve he found a number of lead pencils in a hitherto undiscovered drawer beneath the table, and in scratching upon the table-top with one of them he was delighted to discover the black line it left behind it. He worked so assiduously with this new toy that the table-top was soon a mass of scrawly loops and irregular lines, and his pencil-point worn down to the wood. Then he took another pencil but this time he had a definite object in view. He would attempt to reproduce some of the little bugs that scrambled over the pages of his books. It was a difficult task, for he held the pencil as one would grasp the hilt of a dagger, which does not add greatly to ease in writing or to the legibility of the results. But he persevered for months, at such times as he was able to come to the cabin, until at last, by repeated experimenting, he found a position in which to hold the pencil that best permitted him to guide and control it, so that at last he could roughly reproduce any of the little bugs. Thus he made a beginning of writing. Copying the bugs taught him another thing, their number, and though he could not count as we understand it, yet he had an idea of quantity the base of his calculations being the number of fingers upon one of his hands. His search through the various books convinced him that he had discovered all the different kinds of bugs most often repeated in combination, and these he arranged in proper order with great ease because of the frequency with which he had perused the fascinating alphabet picture-book. His education progressed but his greatest finds were in the inexhaustible storehouse of the huge illustrated dictionary, for he learned more through the medium of pictures than text, even after he had grasped the significance of the bugs. When he discovered the arrangement of words in alphabetical order, he delighted in searching for and finding the combinations with which he was familiar, and the words which followed them, their definitions led him still further into the mazes of erudition. By the time he was seventeen, he had learned to read the simple child's primer, and had fully realized the true and wonderful purpose of the little bugs. No longer did he feel shame for his hairless body or his human features, for now his reason told him that he was of a different race from his wild and hairy companions. He was a M-A-N. They were A-P-E-S and the little apes which scurried through the forest-top were M-O-N-K-E-Y-S. He knew, too, that old Sabor was a L-I-O-N-E-S-S, and Hista a S-N-A-K-E, and Tantor an E-L-E-P-H-A-N-T. And so he learned to read. From then on his progress was rapid. With the help of the great dictionary and the active intelligence of a healthy mind, endowed by inheritance with more than ordinary reasoning powers, he shrewdly guessed at much which he could not really understand, and more often than not his guesses were close to the mark of truth. There were many breaks in his education, caused by the migratory habits of his tribe, but even when removed from his books his active brain continued to search out the mysteries of his fascinating avocation. Pieces of bark and flat leaves, and even smooth stretches of bare earth, 
provided him with copy-books whereon to scratch with the point of his hunting-knife the lessons he was learning. Nor did he neglect the sterner duties of life while following the bent of his inclination toward the solving of the mystery of his library. He practiced with his rope, and played with his sharp knife, which he had learned to keep keen by wetting upon flat stones. The tribe had grown larger since Tarzan had come among them, for under the leadership of Kerchak they had been able to frighten the other tribes from their part of the jungle, so that they had plenty to eat, and little or no loss from predatory incursions of neighbors. Hence the younger males, as they became adult, found it more comfortable to take mates from their own tribe, or if they captured one of another tribe, to bring her back to Kerchak's band, and live in amity with him rather than attempt to set up new establishments of their own, or fight with the redoubtable Kerchak for supremacy at home. Occasionally one more ferocious than his fellows would attempt this latter alternative, but none had come yet who could wrest the palm of victory from the fierce and brutal ape. Tarzan held a peculiar position in the tribe. They seemed to consider him one of them, and yet in some way different. The older males either ignored him entirely, or else hated him so vindictively, that but for his wondrous agility and speed, and the fierce protection of the huge Kala, he would have been dispatched at an early age. Tublat was his most consistent enemy, but it was through Tublat that, when he was about thirteen, the persecution of his enemies suddenly ceased, and he was left severely alone except on the occasions when one of them ran amuck in the throes of one of those strange wild fits of insane rage which attacks the males of many of the fiercer animals of the jungle. Then none was safe. On the day that Tarzan established his right to respect, the tribe was gathered around a small natural amphitheatre which the jungle had left free from its entangling vines and creepers, in a hollow among some low hills. The open space was almost circular in shape. Upon every hand rose the mighty giants of the untouched forest, with the matted undergrowth banked so closely between the huge trunks that the only opening into the little level arena was through the upper branches of the trees. Here, safe from interruption, the tribe often gathered. In the center of the amphitheatre was one of those strange earthen drums which the anthropoids build for the queer rites the sounds of which men have heard in the fastnesses of the jungle, but which none has ever witnessed. Many travellers have seen the drums of the great apes, and some have heard the sounds of their beating and the noise of the wild, weird revelry of these first lords of the jungle. But Tarzan, Lord Greystoke, is doubtless the only human being who ever joined in the fierce, mad, intoxicating revel of the dum-dum. From this primitive function has arisen, unquestionably, all the forms and ceremonials of modern church and state, for through all the countless ages, back beyond the uttermost ramparts of a dawning humanity, our fierce, hairy forebears danced out the rites of the dum-dum, to the sound of their earthen drums. Beneath the bright light of a tropical moon, in the depth of a mighty jungle, which stands unchanged to-day, as it stood on that long, forgotten night, in the dim, unthinkable vistas of the long-dead past, when our first shaggy ancestor swung from a swaying bough and dropped lightly upon the soft turf 
of the first meeting-place. On the day that Tarzan won his emancipation from the persecution that had followed him remorselessly for twelve of his thirteen years of life, the tribe, now a full hundred strong, trooped silently through the lower terrace of the jungle trees and dropped noiselessly upon the floor of the amphitheatre. The rites of the dum-dum marked important events in the life of the tribe, a victory, the capture of a prisoner, the killing of some large fierce denizen of the jungle, the death or accession of a king, and were conducted with set ceremonialism. Today it was the killing of a giant ape, a member of another tribe, and as the people of Kerchak entered the arena two mighty bulls were seen bearing the body of the vanquished between them. They laid their burden before the earthen drum and then squatted there beside it as guards, while the other members of the community curled themselves in grassy nooks to sleep, until the rising moon should give the signal for the commencement of their savage orgy. For hours absolute quiet reigned in the little clearing, except as it was broken by the discordant notes of brilliantly feathered parrots, or the screeching and twittering of the thousand jungle birds flitting ceaselessly amongst the vivid orchids and flamboyant blossoms which festooned the myriad moss-covered branches of the forest kings. At length, as darkness settled upon the jungle, the apes commenced to bestir themselves, and soon they formed a great circle about the earthen drum. The females and young squatted in a thin line at the outer periphery of the circle, while just in front of them ranged the adult males. Before the drum sat three old females, each armed with a knotted branch, fifteen or eighteen inches in length. Slowly and softly they began tapping upon the resounding surface of the drum as the first faint rays of the ascending moon silvered the encircling treetops. As the light in the amphitheatre increased, the females augmented the frequency and force of their blows, until presently a wild rhythmic din pervaded the great jungle for miles in every direction. Huge fierce brutes stopped in their hunting, with up-pricked ears and raised heads, to listen to the dull booming that betokened the dum-dum of the apes. Occasionally one would raise his shrill scream or thunderous roar in answering challenge to the savage din of the anthropoids, but none came near to investigate or attack, for the great apes, assembled in all the power of their numbers, filled the breasts of their jungle neighbors with deep respect. As the din of the drum rose to an almost deafening volume, Kerchak sprang into the open space between the squatting males and the drummers. Standing erect, he threw his head far back, and looking full into the eye of the rising moon, he beat upon his breast with his great hairy paws, and emitted his fearful roaring shriek. One, twice, thrice that terrifying cry rang out across the teeming solitude of that unspeakably quick, yet unthinkably dead world. Then, crouching, Kerchak slunk noiselessly around the open circle, veering far away from the dead body lying before the altar drum, but, as he passed, keeping his little fierce wicked red eyes upon the corpse. Another male then sprang into the arena, and repeating the horrid cries of his king, followed stealthily in his wake. 
another and another followed in quick succession, until the jungle reverberated with the now almost ceaseless notes of their bloodthirsty screams. It was the challenge, and the hunt. When all the adult males had joined in the thin line of circling dancers, the attack commenced. Kerchak, seizing a huge club from the pile which lay at hand for the purpose, rushed furiously upon the dead ape, dealing the corpse a terrific blow, at the same time emitting the growls and snarls of combat. The din of the drum was now increased, as well as the frequency of the blows, and the warriors, as each approached the victim of the hunt, and delivered his bludgeon blow, joined in the mad whirl of the death dance. Tarzan was one of the wild leaping horde, his brown, sweat-streaked, muscular body, glistening in the moonlight, shone supple and graceful among the uncouth, awkward, hairy brutes about him. None was more stealthy in the mimic hunt, none more ferocious than he in the wild ferocity of the attack, none who leaped so high into the air in the dance of death. As the noise and rapidity of the drum beats increased, the dancers apparently became intoxicated with the wild rhythm and the savage yells. Their leaps and bounds increased, their bared fangs dripped saliva, and their lips and breasts were flecked with foam. For half an hour the weird dance went on, until, at a sign from Kerchak, the noise of the drums ceased, the female drummers scampering hurriedly through the line of dancers toward the outer rim of squatting spectators. Then, as one, the males rushed headlong upon the thing which their terrific blows had reduced to a mass of hairy pulp. Flesh seldom came to their jaws in satisfying quantities, so a fit finale to their wild revel was a taste of fresh-killed meat, and it was to the purpose of devouring their late enemy that they now turned their attention. Great fangs sunk into the carcass, tearing away huge hunks, the mightiest of the apes obtaining the choicest morsels while the weaker circled the outer edge of the fighting, snarling pack, awaiting their chance to dodge in and snatch a dropped tidbit, or filch a remaining bone before all was gone. Tarzan, more than the apes, craved and needed flesh. Descended from a race of meat-eaters, never in his life, he thought, had he once satisfied his appetite for animal food, and so now his agile little body wormed its way far into the mass of struggling, rending apes in an endeavor to obtain a share which his strength would have been unequal to the task of winning for him. At his side hung the hunting-knife of his unknown father, in a sheath self-fashioned and copy of one he had seen among the pictures of his treasure-books. At last he reached the fast-disappearing feast, and with his sharp knife slashed off a more generous portion than he had hoped for, an entire hairy forearm, where it protruded from beneath the feet of the mighty Kerchak, who was so busily engaged in perpetuating the royal prerogative of gluttony that he failed to note the act of les majestes. So little Tarzan wriggled out from beneath the struggling mass, clutching his grisly prize close to his breast. Among those circling futilely the outskirts of the banqueters was old Tublat. He had been among the first at the feast, but had retreated with a goodly share to eat in quiet, and was now forcing his way back for more. So it was that he spied Tarzan as the boy emerged from the clawing, pushing throng, with that hairy forearm hugged firmly to his body. 
Tublat's little, close-set, bloodshot pig-eyes shot wicked gleams of hate as they fell upon the object of his loathing. In them, too, was greed for the toothsome dainty the boy carried. But Tarzan saw his arch-enemy as quickly, and divining what the great beasts would do, he leaped nimbly away toward the females and the young, hoping to hide himself among them. Tublat, however, was close upon his heels, so that he had no opportunity to seek a place of concealment, but saw that he would be put to it to escape at all. Swiftly he sped toward the surrounding trees, and with an agile bound gained a lower limb with one hand, and then, transferring his burden to his teeth, he climbed rapidly upward, closely followed by Tublat. Up, up he went to the waving pinnacle of a lofty monarch of the forest, where his heavy pursuer dared not follow him. There he perched, hurling taunts and insults at the raging, foaming beast fifty feet below him. And then Tublat went mad. With horrifying screams and roars he rushed to the ground, among the females and young, sinking his great fangs into a dozen tiny necks, and tearing great pieces from the backs and breasts of the females who fell into his clutches. In the brilliant moonlight Tarzan witnessed the whole mad carnival of rage. He saw the females and the young scamper to the safety of the trees. Then the great bulls in the center of the arena felt the mighty fangs of their demented fellow, and with one accord they melted into the black shadows of the overhanging forest. There was but one in the amphitheater beside Tublat, a belated female running swiftly toward the tree where Tarzan perched, and close behind her came the awful Tublat. It was Kayla, and as quickly as Tarzan saw the Tublat was gaining on her, he dropped with the rapidity of a falling stone from branch to branch toward his foster mother. Now she was beneath the overhanging limbs, and close above her crouched Tarzan, awaiting the outcome of the race. She leaped into the air, grasping a low-hanging branch, but almost over the head of Tublat, so nearly had he distanced her. She should have been safe now, but there was a rending, tearing sound. The branch broke, and precipitated her full upon the head of Tublat, knocking him to the ground. Both were up in an instant, but as quick as they had been, Tarzan had been quicker, so that the infuriated bull found himself facing the man-child who stood between him and Kayla. Nothing could have suited the fierce beast better, and with a roar of triumph he leaped upon the little Lord Greystoke. But his fangs never closed in that nut-brown flesh. A muscular hand shot out and grasped the hairy throat, and another plunged a keen hunting-knife a dozen times into the broad breast. Like lightning the blows fell, and only ceased when Tarzan felt the limp form crumple beneath him. As the body rolled to the ground, Tarzan of the apes placed his foot upon the neck of his lifelong enemy, and raising his eyes to the full moon, threw back his fierce young head and voiced the wild and terrible cry of his people. One by one the tribe swung down from their arboreal retreats, and formed a circle about Tarzan and his vanquished foe. When they had all come, Tarzan turned toward them. "'I am Tarzan!' he cried. "'I am a great killer. Let all respect Tarzan of the apes, and Kayla his mother. There be none among you as mighty as Tarzan. Let his enemies beware!' Looking full into the wicked red eyes of Kerchak, 
the young Lord Greystoke beat upon his mighty breast and screamed out once more his shrill cry of defiance. End of chapter Chapter 8 of Tarzan of the Apes This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Tarzan of the Apes by Edgar Rice Burroughs Chapter 8 The Treetop Hunter the morning after the dum-dum the tribe started slowly back through the forest towards the coast. The body of Tublat lay where it had fallen, for the people of Kerchak do not eat their own dead. The march was but a leisurely search for food. Cabbage palm and grey plum, pisang and citamine they found in abundance, with wild pineapple and occasionally small mammals, birds, eggs, reptiles, and insects. The nuts they cracked between their powerful jaws, or, if too hard, broke by pounding between stones. Once old Sabor, crossing their path, sent them scurrying to the safety of the higher branches, for if she respected their number and their sharp fangs, they on their part held her cruel and mighty ferocity in equal esteem. Upon a low-hanging branch sat Tarzan directly above the majestic supple body as it forged silently through the thick jungle. He hurled a pineapple at the ancient enemy of his people. The great beast stopped, and turning, eyed the taunting figure above her. With an angry lash of her tail she bared her yellow fangs, curling her great lips in a hideous snarl that wrinkled her bristling snout in serried ridges, and closed her wicked eyes to two narrow slits of rage and hatred. With laid-back ears she looked straight into the eyes of Tarzan of the Apes, and sounded her fierce, shrill challenge. And from the safety of his overhanging limb the ape-child sent back the fearsome answer of his kind. For a moment the two eyed each other in silence, and then the great cat turned into the jungle, which swallowed her as the ocean engulfs a tossed pebble. But into the mind of Tarzan a great plan sprang. He had killed the fierce Tublat, so was he not therefore a mighty fighter? Now would he track down the mighty Sabor and slay her likewise. He would be a mighty hunter also. At the bottom of his little English heart beat the great desire to cover his nakedness with clothes, for he had learned from his picture-books that all men were so covered, while monkeys and apes and every other living thing went naked. Clothes, therefore, must be truly a badge of greatness, the insignia of the superiority of man over all other animals, for surely there could be no other reason for wearing the hideous things. Many moons ago, when he had been much smaller, he had desired the skin of Sabor the lioness, or Numa the lion, or Sheeta the leopard to cover his hairless body, that he might no longer resemble hideous Hista the snake. But now he was proud of his sleek skin, for it betokened his descent from a mighty race, and the conflicting desires to go naked in prideful proof of his ancestry or to conform to the customs of his own kind and wear hideous and uncomfortable apparel, found first one and then the other in the ascendancy. As the tribe continued their slow way through the forest after the passing of Sabor, 
Tarzan's head was filled with his great scheme for slaying his enemy, and for many days thereafter he thought of little else. On this day, however, he presently had other and more immediate interests to attract his attention. Suddenly it became as midnight, the noises of the jungle ceased, the trees stood motionless as though in paralyzed expectancy of some great and imminent disaster. All nature waited, but not for long. Faintly from a distance came a low, sad moaning. Nearer and nearer it approached, mounting louder and louder in volume. The great trees bent in unison as though pressed earthward by a mighty hand. Farther and farther toward the ground they inclined, and still there was no sound save the deep and awesome moaning of the wind. Then, suddenly, the jungle giants whipped back, lashing their mighty tops in angry and deafening protests. A vivid and blinding light flashed from the whirling inky clouds above. The deep cannonade of roaring thunder belched forth its fearsome challenge. The deluge came. All hell broke loose upon the jungle. The tribe shivering from the cold rain huddled at the bases of great trees. The lightning, darting and flashing through the blackness, showed wildly waving branches, whipping streamers and bending trunks. Now and again some ancient patriarch of the woods, rent by a flashing bolt, would crash in a thousand pieces among the surrounding trees, carrying down numberless branches and many smaller neighbors to add to the tangled confusion of the tropical jungle. Branches, great and small, torn away by the ferocity of the tornado, hurtled through the wildly waving verdure, carrying death and destruction to countless unhappy denizens of the thickly peopled world below. For hours the fury of the storm continued without surcease, and still the tribe huddled close in shivering fear. In constant danger from falling trunks and branches, and paralyzed by the vivid flashing of lightning and the bellowing of thunder, they crouched in pitiful misery until the storm passed. The end was as sudden as the beginning. The wind ceased. The sun shone forth. Nature smiled once more. The dripping leaves and branches, and the moist petals of gorgeous flowers glistened in the splendor of the returning day. And so, as nature forgot, her children forgot also. Busy life went on as it had been before the darkness and the fright. But to Tarzan a dawning light had come to explain the mystery of clothes. How snug he would have been beneath the heavy coat of Sabor, and so was added a further incentive to the adventure. For several months the tribe hovered near the beach where stood Tarzan's cabin, and his studies took up the greater portion of his time, but always when journeying through the forest he kept his rope in readiness, and many were the smaller animals that fell into the snare of the quick-thrown noose. Once it fell about the short neck of Horta, the boar, and his mad lunge for freedom toppled Tarzan from the overhanging limb where he had lain in wait, and from whence he had launched his sinuous coil. The mighty tusker turned at the sound of his falling body, and, seeing only the easy prey of a young ape, he lowered his head and charged madly at the surprised youth. Tarzan, happily, was uninjured by the fall, alighting cat-like upon all fours, far outspread to take up the shock. He was on his feet in an instant, and leaping with the agility of the monkey he was, he gained the safety of a low limb 
as Horta, the boar, rushed futilely beneath. Thus it was that Tarzan learned by experience the limitations as well as the possibilities of his strange weapon. He lost a long rope on this occasion, but he knew that had it been Sabor who had thus dragged him from his perch, the outcome might have been very different, for he would have lost his life, doubtless, into the bargain. It took him many days to braid a new rope, but when, finally, it was done, he went forth purposely to hunt, and lie in wait among the dense foliage of a great branch right above the well-beaten trail that led to water. Several small animals passed unharmed beneath him. He did not want such insignificant game. It would take a strong animal to test the efficacy of his new scheme. At last came she whom Tarzan sought, with lithe sinews rolling beneath shimmering hide, fat and glossy came Sabor, the lioness. Her great padded feet fell soft and noiseless on the narrow trail. Her head was high in ever-alert attention, her long tail moved slowly in sinuous and graceful undulations. Nearer and nearer she came to where Tarzan of the apes crouched upon his limb, the coils of his long rope poised ready in his hand. Like a thing of bronze, motionless as death, sat Tarzan. Sabor passed beneath. One stride beyond she took, a second, a third, and then the silent coil shot out above her. For an instant the spreading noose hung above her head like a great snake, and then, as she looked upward to detect the origin of the swishing sound of the rope, it settled about her neck. With a quick jerk Tarzan snapped the noose tight about the glossy throat, and then he dropped the rope and clung to his support with both hands. Sabor was trapped. With a bound the startled beast turned into the jungle, but Tarzan was not to lose another rope through the same cause as the first. He had learned from experience. The lioness had taken but half her second bound when she felt the rope tighten about her neck, her body turned completely over in the air, and she fell with a heavy crash upon her back. Tarzan had fastened the end of the rope securely to the trunk of the great tree on which he sat. Thus far his plan had worked to perfection, but when he grasped the rope, bracing himself behind a crotch of two mighty branches, he found that dragging the mighty, struggling, clawing, biting, screaming mass of iron-muscled fury up to the tree and hanging her was a very different proposition. The weight of old Sabor was immense, and when she braced her huge paws nothing less than Tantor, the elephant himself, could have budged her. The lioness was now back in the path where she could see the author of the indignity which had been placed upon her. Screaming with rage, she suddenly charged, leaping high into the air toward Tarzan, but when her huge body struck the limb on which Tarzan had been, Tarzan was no longer there. Instead he perched lightly upon a smaller branch twenty feet above the raging captive. For a moment Sabor hung half across the branch, while Tarzan mocked and hurled twigs and branches at her unprotected face. Presently the beast dropped to the earth again, and Tarzan came quickly to seize the rope. But Sabor had now found that it was only a slender cord that held her, and grasping it in her huge paws, severed it before Tarzan could tighten the strangling noose a second time. Tarzan was much hurt. His well-laid plan had come to naught, 
so he sat there screaming at the roaring creature beneath him and making mocking grimaces at it. Sabor paced back and forth beneath the tree for hours. Four times she crouched and sprang at the dancing sprite above her, but might as well have clutched at the elusive wind that murmured through the treetops. At last Tarzan tired of the sport, and with a parting roar of challenge and a well-aimed ripe fruit that spread soft and sticky over the snarling face of his enemy, he swung rapidly through the trees, a hundred feet above the ground, and in a short time was among the members of his tribe. Here he recounted the details of his adventure, with swelling chest and so considerable swagger, that he quite impressed even his bitterest enemies, while Kayla fairly danced for joy and pride. End of chapter. Chapter 9 of Tarzan of the Apes. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Tarzan of the Apes by Edgar Rice Burroughs Chapter 9 Man and Man Tarzan of the Apes lived on in his wild jungle existence with little change for several years, only that he grew stronger and wiser, and learned from his books more and more of the strange worlds which lay somewhere outside his primeval forest. To him life was never monotonous or stale. There was always Pisa, the fish, to be caught in the many streams and the little lakes, and Sabor with her ferocious cousins to keep one ever on the alert, and give zest to every instant that one spent upon the ground. Often they hunted him, and more often he hunted them, but though they never quite reached him with those cruel, sharp claws of theirs, yet there were times when one could scarce have passed a thick leaf between their talons and his smooth hide. Quick was Sabor the lioness, and quick were Numa and Sheeta, but Tarzan of the Apes was lightning. With Tantor the elephant he made friends. How? <laughs> Ask not. But this is known to the denizens of the jungle, that on many moonlight nights Tarzan the Apes and Tantor the elephant walked together, and where the way was clear Tarzan rode, perched high upon Tantor's mighty back. Many days during these years he spent in the cabin of his father, where lay still, untouched, the bones of his parents and the skeleton of Kayla's baby. At eighteen he read fluently, and understood nearly all he read in the many and varied volumes on the shelves. Also could he write, with printed letters, rapidly and plainly, but script he had not mastered, for though there were several copy-books among his treasure, there was so little written English in the cabin that he saw no use for bothering with this other form of writing, though he could read it laboriously. Thus at eighteen we find him, an English lordling, who could speak no English, and yet who could read and write his native language. Never had he seen a human being other than himself, for the little area traversed by his tribe was watered by no greater river to bring down the savage natives of the interior. High hills shut it off on three sides, the ocean on the fourth. It was alive with lions and leopards and poisonous snakes. 
its untouched mazes of matted jungle had as yet invited no hardy pioneer from the human beasts beyond its frontier. But as Tarzan of the Apes sat one day in the cabin of his father, delving into the mysteries of a new book, the ancient security of his jungle was broken forever. At the far eastern confine a strange cavalcade strung, in single file, over the brow of a low hill. In advance were fifty black warriors, armed with slender wooden spears, with ends hard-baked over slow fires, and long bows, and poisoned arrows. On their backs were oval shields, in their noses huge rings, while from the kinky wool of their heads protruded tufts of gay feathers. Across their foreheads were tattooed three parallel lines of color, and on each breast three concentric circles. Their yellow teeth were filed to sharp points, and their great protruding lips added still further to the low and bestial brutishness of their appearance. Following them were several hundred women and children, the former bearing upon their heads great burdens of cooking-pots, household utensils, and ivory. In the rear were a hundred warriors, similar in all respects to the advance guard. That they more greatly feared an attack from the rear than whatever unknown enemies lurked in their advance was evidenced by the formation of the column, and such was the fact, for they were fleeing from the white man's soldiers, who had so harassed them for rubber and ivory, that they had turned upon their conquerors one day, and massacred a white officer and a small detachment of his black troops. For many days they had gorged themselves on meat, but eventually a stronger body of troops had come and fallen upon their village by night to revenge the death of their comrades. That night the black soldiers of the white man had had meat aplenty, and this little remnant of a once powerful tribe had slunk off into the gloomy jungle toward the unknown and freedom. But that which meant freedom and the pursuit of happiness to these savage blacks meant consternation and death to many of the wild denizens of their new home. For three days the little cavalcade marched slowly through the heart of this unknown and untracked forest, until finally, early in the fourth day, they came upon a little spot near the banks of a small river, which seemed less thickly overgrown than any ground they had yet encountered. Here they set to work to build a new village, and in a month a great clearing had been made, huts and palisades erected, plantains, yams, and maize planted, and they had taken up their old life in their new home. Here there were no white men, no soldiers, nor any rubber or ivory to be gathered for cruel and thankless taskmasters. Several moons passed by ere the blacks ventured far into the territory surrounding their new village. Several had already fallen prey to old Sabor, and because the jungle was so infested with these fierce and bloodthirsty cats, and with lions and leopards, the ebony warriors hesitated to trust themselves far from the safety of their palisades. But one day Kulonga, a son of the old king Mabonga, wandered far into the dense mazes to the west. Warily he stepped, his slender lance ever ready, his long oval shield firmly grasped in his left hand close to his sleek ebony body. At his back his bow, and in the quiver upon his shield many slim straight arrows, well smeared with a thick dark tarry substance that rendered deadly their tiniest needle prick.
Night found Kulonga far from the palisades of his father's village, but still headed westward, and climbing into the fork of a great tree he fashioned a rude platform and curled himself for sleep. Three miles to the west slept the tribe of Kerchak. Early the next morning the apes were astir, moving through the jungle in search of food. Tarzan, as was his custom, prosecuted his search in the direction of the cabin, so that by leisurely hunting on the way his stomach was filled by the time he reached the beach. The apes scattered by ones and twos and threes in all directions, but ever within sound of a signal of alarm. Kayla had moved slowly along an elephant track toward the east, and was busily engaged in turning over rotted limbs and logs in search of succulent bugs and fungi, when the faintest shadow of a strange noise brought her to startled attention. For fifty yards before her the trail was straight, and down this leafy tunnel she saw the stealthy, advancing figure of a strange and fearful creature. It was Kulonga. Kayla did not wait to see more, but turning moved rapidly back along the trail. She did not run, but after the manner of her kind when not aroused, sought rather to avoid than to escape. Close after her came Kulonga. Here was meat. He could make a killing and feast well this day. On he hurried, his spear poised for the throw. At a turning of the trail he came in sight of her again upon another straight stretch. His spear-hand went far back. The muscles rolled lightning-like beneath the sleek hide. Out shot the arm, and the spear sped toward Kayla. A poor cast. It but grazed her side. With a cry of rage and pain the she-ape turned upon her tormentor. In an instant the trees were crashing beneath the weight of her hurrying fellows, swinging rapidly toward the scene of trouble, in answer to Kayla's scream. As she charged, Kulonga unslung his bow and fitted an arrow with an almost unthinkable quickness. Drawing the shaft far back, he drove the poison missile straight into the heart of the great anthropoid. With a hard scream Kayla plunged forward upon her face, before the astonished members of her tribe. Roaring and shrieking, the apes dashed toward Kulonga, but that wary savage was fleeing down the trail like a frightened antelope. He knew something of the ferocity of these wild, hairy men, and his one desire was to put as many miles between himself and them as he possibly could. They followed him, racing through the trees for a long distance, but finally, one by one, they abandoned the chase, and returned to the scene of the tragedy. None of them had ever seen a man before, other than Tarzan, and so they wondered vaguely what strange manner of creature it might be that had invaded their jungle. On the far beach by the little cabin, Tarzan heard the faint echoes of the conflict, and knowing that something was seriously amiss among the tribe, he hastened rapidly toward the direction of the sound. When he arrived he found the entire tribe gathered jabbering about the dead body of his slain mother. Tarzan's grief and anger were unbounded. He roared out his hideous challenge time and again. He beat upon his great chest with his clenched fists, and then he fell upon the body of Kayla, and sobbed out the pitiful sorrowing of his lonely heart. To lose the only creature in all his world who had ever manifested love and affection for him was the greatest tragedy he had ever known. What though Kayla was a fierce and hideous ape, 
To Tarzan she had been kind, she had been beautiful. Upon her he had lavished, unknown to himself, all the reverence and respect and love that a normal English boy feels for his own mother. He had never known another, and so to Kayla was given, though mutely, all that would have belonged to the fair and lovely Lady Alice had she lived. After the first outburst of grief Tarzan controlled himself, and questioning the members of the tribe who had witnessed the killing of Kayla, he learned all that their meagre vocabulary could convey. It was enough, however, for his needs. It told him of a strange hairless black ape with feathers growing upon its head, who launched death from a slender branch, and then ran, with the fleetness of Bera the deer, toward the rising sun. Tarzan waited no longer, but, leaping into the branches of the trees, sped rapidly through the forest. He knew the windings of the elephant trail along which Kayla's murderer had flown, and so he cut straight through the jungle to intercept the black warrior, who was evidently following the tortuous detours of the trail. At his side was the hunting-knife of his unknown sire, and across his shoulders the coils of his own long rope. In an hour he struck the trail again, and coming to earth examined the soil minutely. In the soft mud on the bank of a tiny rivulet he found footprints such as he alone in all the jungle had ever made, but much larger than his. His heart beat fast. Could it be that he was trailing a man, one of his own race? There were two sets of imprints pointing in opposite directions, so his quarry had already passed on his return along the trail. As he examined the newer spoor, a tiny particle of earth toppled from the outer edge of one of the footprints to the bottom of its shallow depression. Ah, the trail was very fresh. His prey must have but scarcely passed. Tarzan swung himself to the trees once more, and with swift noiselessness sped along high above the trail. He had covered barely a mile when he came upon the black warrior standing in a little open space. In his hand was his slender bow to which he had fitted one of his death-dealing arrows. Opposite him across the little clearing stood Horta, the boar, with lowered head and foam-flecked tusks, ready to charge. Tarzan looked with wonder upon the strange creature beneath him, so like him in form and yet so different in face and color. His books had portrayed the negro, but how different had been the dull dead print to this sleek thing of ebony, pulsing with life! As the man stood there with taut drawn bow, Tarzan recognized him not so much the negro as the archer of his picture-book. A stands for archer. How wonderful! Tarzan almost betrayed his presence in the deep excitement of his discovery. But things were commencing to happen below him. The sinewy black arm had drawn the shaft far back. Horta, the boar, was charging, and then the black released the little poisoned arrow, and Tarzan saw it fly with the quickness of thought and lodge in the bristling neck of the boar. Scarcely had the shaft left his bow ere Kulonga had fitted another to it, but Horta the boar was upon him so quickly that he had no time to discharge it. With a bound the black leaped entirely over the rushing beast, and turning with incredible swiftness planted a second arrow in Horta's back. Then Kulonga sprang into a nearby tree. Horta wheeled to charge his enemy once more. A dozen steps he took. 
Then he staggered and fell upon his side. For a moment his muscles stiffened and relaxed convulsively. Then he lay still. Kulonga came down from the tree. With a knife that hung at his side he cut several large pieces from the boar's body, and in the center of the trail he built a fire, cooking and eating as much as he wanted. The rest he left where it had fallen. Tarzan was an interested spectator. His desire to kill burned fiercely in his wild breast, but his desire to learn was even greater. He would follow this savage creature for a while, and know from whence he came. He could kill him at his leisure later, when the bow and deadly arrows were laid aside. When Kulonga had finished his repast and disappeared beyond a near turning of the path, Tarzan dropped quietly to the ground. With his knife he severed many strips of meat from Horta's carcass, but he did not cook them. He had seen fire, but only when Ara, the lightning, had destroyed some great tree. That any creature of the jungle could produce the white and yellow fangs which devoured wood and left nothing but fine dust surprised Tarzan greatly, and why the black warrior had ruined his delicious repast by plunging it into the blighting heat was quite beyond him. Possibly Ara was a friend with whom the archer was sharing his food. But, be that as it may, Tarzan would not ruin good meat in any such foolish manner, so he gobbled down a great quantity of the raw flesh, burying the balance of the carcass beside the trail where he could find it upon his return. And then Lord Greystoke wiped his greasy fingers upon his naked thighs, and took up the trail of Kulonga, the son of Mbonga, the king while in far-off London another Lord Greystoke, the younger brother of the real Lord Greystoke's father, sent back his chops to the club's chef, because they were underdone, and when he had finished his repast he tipped his finger-ends into a silver bowl of scented water, and dried them upon a piece of snowy damask. All day Tarzan followed Kulonga, hovering above him in the trees like some malign spirit. Twice more he saw him hurl his arrows of destruction, once at Dango, the hyena, and again at Manu, the monkey. In each instance the animal died almost instantly, for Kulonga's poison was very fresh and very deadly. Tarzan thought much on this wondrous method of slaying, as he swung slowly along at a safe distance behind his quarry. He knew that alone the tiny prick of the arrow could not so quickly dispatch these wild things of the jungle, who were often torn and scratched and gored in a frightful manner as they fought with their jungle neighbors, yet as often recovered as not. No, there was something mysterious connected with these tiny slivers of wood which could bring death by a mere scratch. He must look into the matter." That night Kulonga slept in a crotch of a mighty tree, and far above him crouched Tarzan of the Apes. When Kulonga awoke he found that his bow and arrows had disappeared. The black warrior was furious and frightened, but more frightened than furious. He searched the ground below the tree, and he searched the tree above the ground, but there was no sign of either bow or arrows or of the nocturnal marauder. Kulonga was panic-stricken. His spear he had hurled at Kala and had not recovered, and, now his bow and arrows were gone, he was defenseless except for a single knife. His only hope lay in reaching the village of Mbonga as quickly as his legs would carry him. 
That he was not far from home he was certain, so he took the trail at a rapid trot. From a great mass of impenetrable foliage a few yards away emerged Tarzan of the Apes to swing quietly in his wake. Kulonga's bow and arrows were securely tied high in the top of a giant tree from which a patch of bark had been removed by a sharp knife near to the ground, and a branch half cut through and left hanging about fifty feet higher up. Thus Tarzan blazed the forest trails and marked his caches. As Kulonga continued his journey Tarzan closed on him until he travelled almost over the black's head. His rope he now held coiled in his right hand. He was almost ready for the kill. The moment was delayed only because Tarzan was anxious to ascertain the black warrior's destination, and presently he was rewarded, for he came suddenly in view of a great clearing at one end of which lay many strange lairs. Tarzan was directly over Kulonga, as he made the discovery. The forest ended abruptly, and beyond lay two hundred yards of planted fields between the jungle and the village. Tarzan must act quickly, or his prey would be gone, but Tarzan's life-training left so little space between decision and action when an emergency confronted him that there was not even room for the shadow of a thought between. So it was that as Kulonga emerged from the shadow of the jungle, a slender coil of rope sped sinuously above him from the lowest branch of a mighty tree directly upon the edge of the fields of Mbonga, and ere the king's son had taken a half-dozen steps into the clearing, a quick noose tightened about his neck. So quickly did Tarzan of the apes drag back his prey that Kulonga's cry of alarm was throttled in his windpipe. Hand over hand Tarzan drew the struggling black until he had him hanging by his neck in mid-air. Then Tarzan climbed to a larger branch, drawing the still-threshing victim well up into the sheltering verdure of the tree. Here he fastened the rope securely to a stout branch, and then, descending, plunged his hunting-knife into Kulonga's heart. Kalo was avenged. Tarzan examined the black minutely, for he had never seen any other human being. The knife with its sheath and belt caught his eye. He appropriated them. A copper anklet also took his fancy, and this he transferred to his own leg. He examined and admired the tattooing on the forehead and breast. He marveled at the sharp, filed teeth. He investigated and appropriated the feathered headdress, and then he prepared to get down to business, for Tarzan of the Apes was hungry. And here was meat, meat of the kill which jungle ethics permitted him to eat. How may we judge him? By what standards? This ape-man with the heart and head and body of an English gentleman and the training of a wild beast. Tublat, whom he had hated and who had hated him, he had killed in a fair fight, and yet never had the thought of eating Tublat's flesh entered his head. It could have been as revolting to him as his cannibalism to us. But who was Kulonga that he might not be eaten as fairly as Horta the boar, or Bera the deer? Was he not simply another of the countless wild things of the jungle, who preyed upon one another to satisfy the cravings of hunger? Suddenly a strange doubt stayed his hand. Had not his books taught him that he was a man? And was not the archer a man also? Did men eat men? Alas, he did not know. Why, then, this hesitancy? Once more he essayed the effort. 
but a qualm of nausea overwhelmed him. He did not understand. All he knew was that he could not eat the flesh of this black man, and thus hereditary instinct, ages old, usurped the functions of his untaught mind, and saved him from transgressing a world-wide law of whose very existence he was ignorant. Quickly he lowered Kulonga's body to the ground, removed the noose, and took to the trees again. End of chapter Chapter 10 of Tarzan of the Apes This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Tarzan of the Apes by Edgar Rice Burroughs Chapter 10 The Fear Phantom from a lofty perch Tarzan viewed the village of thatched huts across the intervening plantation. He saw that at one point the forest touched the village, and to this spot he made his way, lured by a fever of curiosity to behold animals of his own kind, and to learn more of their ways, and view the strange lairs in which they lived. His savage life among the fierce wild brutes of the jungle left no opening for any thought that these could be aught else than enemies. Similarity of form led him into no erroneous conception of the welcome that would be accorded him should he be discovered by these, the first of his own kind he had ever seen. Tarzan of the Apes was no sentimentalist. He knew nothing of the brotherhood of man. All things outside his own tribe were his deadly enemies, with a few exceptions of which Tantor, the elephant, was a marked example. And he realized all this without malice or hatred. To kill was the law of the wild world he knew. Few were his primitive pleasures, but the greatest of these was to hunt and kill, and so he accorded to others the right to cherish the same desires as he, even though he himself might be the object of their hunt. His strange life had left him neither morose nor bloodthirsty. That he joyed in killing, and that he killed with a joyous laugh upon his handsome lips, betokened no innate cruelty. He killed for food most often, but, being a man, he sometimes killed for pleasure, a thing which no other animal does, for it has remained for man alone among all creatures to kill senselessly and wantonly, for the mere pleasure of inflicting suffering and death. And when he killed for revenge, or in self-defense, he did that also without hysteria, for it was a very business-like proceeding which admitted of no levity. So it was that now, as he cautiously approached the village of Mabonga, he was quite prepared either to kill or be killed, should he be discovered. He proceeded with unwanted stealth, for Kulonga had taught him great respect for the little sharp splinters of wood which dealt death so swiftly and unerringly. At length he came to a great tree, heavy laden with thick foliage, and loaded with pendant loops of giant creepers. From this almost impenetrable bower above the village he crouched, looking down upon the scene below him, wandering over every feature of this new, strange life. There were naked children running and playing in the village street. There were women grinding dried plantain in crude stone mortars, while others were fashioning cakes from the powdered flour. 
Out in the fields he could see still other women hoeing, weeding, and gathering. All wore strange protruding girdles of dried grass about their hips, and many were loaded with brass and copper anklets, armlets, and bracelets. Around many a dusky neck hung curiously coiled strands of wire, while several were further ornamented by huge nose-rings. Tarzan of the apes looked with growing wonder at these strange creatures. Dozing in the shade he saw several men, while at the extreme outskirts of the clearing he occasionally caught glimpses of armed warriors, apparently guarding the village against surprise from an attacking enemy. He noticed that the women alone worked. Nowhere was there evidence of a man tilling the fields, or performing any of the homely duties of the village. Finally his eyes rested upon a woman directly beneath him. Before her was a small cauldron standing over a low fire, and in it bubbled a thick, reddish, tarry mass. On one side of her lay a quantity of wooden arrows, the points of which she dipped into the seething substance, then laying them upon a narrow rack of boughs which stood upon her other side. Tarzan of the Apes was fascinated. Here was the secret of the terrible destructiveness of the archer's tiny missiles. He noted the extreme care which the woman took that none of the matter should touch her hands, and once when a particle splattered upon one of her fingers, he saw her plunge the member into a vessel of water and quickly rub the tiny stain away with a handful of leaves. Tarzan knew nothing of poison, but his shrewd reasoning told him that it was this deadly stuff that killed, and not the little arrow, which was merely the messenger that carried it into the body of his victim. How he should like to have more of those little death-dealing slivers! If the woman would only leave her work for an instant he could drop down, gather up a handful, and be back in the tree again before she drew three breaths. As he was trying to think out some plan to distract her attention, he heard a wild cry from across the clearing. He looked and saw a black warrior standing beneath the very tree in which he had killed the murderer of Kayla an hour before. The fellow was shouting and waving his spear above his head. Now and again he would point to something on the ground before him. The village was in an uproar instantly. Armed men rushed from the interior of many a hut and raced madly across the clearing towards the excited sentry. After them trooped the old men and the women and children until, in a moment, the village was deserted. Tarzan of the apes knew that they had found the body of his victim, but that interested him far less than the fact that no one remained in the village to prevent his taking a supply of the arrows which lay below him. Quickly and noiselessly he dropped to the ground beside the cauldron of poison. For a moment he stood motionless, his quick bright eyes scanning the interior of the palisade. No one was in sight. His eyes rested upon the open doorway of a nearby hut. He would take a look within, thought Tarzan, and so cautiously he approached the low, thatched building. For a moment he stood without, listening intently. There was no sound, and he glided into the semi-darkness of the interior. Weapons hung against the walls, long spears, strangely shaped knives, a couple of narrow shields. In the center of the room was a cooking-pot, and at the far end a litter of dry grasses covered by woven mats which evidently served the owners as beds and bedding. Several human skulls lay upon the floor. Tarzan of the apes felt of each article. 
hefted the spears, smelled of them, for he saw largely through his sensitive and highly trained nostrils. He determined to own one of these long pointed sticks, but he could not take one on this trip because of the arrows he meant to carry. As he took each article from the walls, he placed it in a pile in the center of the room. On top of all he placed the cooking pot, inverted, and on top of this he laid one of the grinning skulls, upon which he fastened the headdress of the dead Kulonga. Then he stood back, surveyed his work, and grinned. Tarzan of the apes enjoyed a joke. But now he heard outside the sounds of many voices, and long mournful howls, and mighty wailing. He was startled. Had he remained too long? Quickly he reached the doorway, and peered down the village street toward the village gate. The natives were not yet in sight, though he could plainly hear them approaching across the plantation. They must be very near. Like a flash he sprang across the opening to the pile of arrows. Gathering up all he could carry under one arm, he overturned the seething cauldron with a kick, and disappeared into the foliage above just as the first of the returning natives entered the gate at the far end of the village street. Then he turned to watch the proceeding below, poised like some wild bird ready to take swift wing at the first sign of danger. The natives filed up the street, four of them bearing the dead body of Kulonga. Behind trailed the women, uttering strange cries and weird lamentation. On they came to the portals of Kulonga's hut, the very one in which Tarzan had wrought his depredations. Scarcely had half a dozen entered the building ere they came rushing out in wild, jabbering confusion. The others hastened to gather about. There was much excited gesticulating, pointing, and chattering. Then several of the warriors approached and peered within. Finally an old fellow with many ornaments of metal about his arms and legs, and a necklace of dried human hands depending upon his chest, entered the hut. It was Mubanga, the king, father of Kulonga. For a few moments all was silent. Then Mubanga emerged a look of mingled wrath and superstitious fear writ upon his hideous countenance. He spoke a few words to the assembled warriors, and in an instant the men were flying through the little village, searching minutely every hut and corner within the palisades. Scarcely had the search commenced than the overturned cauldron was discovered, and with it the theft of the poisoned arrows. Nothing more they found and it was a thoroughly awed and frightened group of savages which huddled around their kings a few moments later. Mabonga could explain nothing of the strange events that had taken place. The finding of the still warm body of Kulonga, on the very verge of their fields and with an easy earshot of the village, knifed and stripped at the door of his father's home, was in itself sufficiently mysterious. But these last awesome discoveries within the village within the dead Kulonga's own hut, filled their hearts with dismay, and conjured in their poor brains only the most frightful of superstitious explanations. They stood in little groups, talking in low tones, and ever casting affrighted glances behind them from their great rolling eyes. Tarzan of the apes watched them for a while from his lofty perch in the great tree. There was much in their demeanor which he could not understand, for of superstition he was ignorant, and of fear of any kind he had but a vague conception. The sun was high in the heavens. Tarzan had not broken fast this day, 
and it was many miles to where lay the toothsome remains of Horta the boar. So he turned his back upon the village of Mabonga, and melted away into the leafy fastness of the forest. End of chapter